0: Welcome to Faith, Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DiVitro. But we're going to continue our Missions as Discipleship series. And uh, we defined a disciple as someone who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. So someone who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others to follow him. So last week we were challenged to not live according to the ways of the world, but the truth of God's word. God's word is the sole authority for faith and practice for the Christian. If we were to use tradition, what's the problem with tradition? Traditions die. Traditions change. Uh, if we went with man's thinking, what's wrong with that? So many things, right? We don't, we don't have time to... Uh, have you ever changed your mind just in the split moment that you argued with yourself? and changed your mind a second time, and then you walk in the next room and you can't even remember why you walked in there, right? Could you imagine if man was a source of truth, how difficult would it be to follow truth? But if God is the source of truth and he's everlasting and he's always the same, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then what do we know about truth? There's an absolute. There's a constant there. If truth is tied to God, then, then, and God defines truth, then there is a universal truth that will always be true that will withstand culture, withstand time, and withstand man's opinions. And aren't you glad we have truth? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the... There it is, right? And I am the life. Aren't you glad he gives eternal life? We don't have to doubt that he's life, right? He is eternal life. John 3, 16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever places their weight in him should not be eternally separated from God, perish, but for all of eternity live with God, but have everlasting, what? Jesus Christ is the life giver. He says, I am the way to God. I am the truth that never changes. And I am eternal life. And if you want to get to God today, you want to know what God wants, then you better understand his word. So last week we emphasized the word of God. And today I'm going to challenge you with this thought. There is a very high cost. There is a very high cost to God when it comes to discipleship. There's a very high cost. In Luke chapter 14, we're going to look at that here in just a moment. And, and I'm going to tell you something that you probably, some of you have never heard since I've been here as pastor. Actually, some of you have heard it and you're like, you're going to be like, no, this ain't going to happen. This is going to be one of the shortest messages I've ever preached here. Some of you are laughing because you're like, that's not possible, pastor. We know, okay? And, and, and I get that, all right? And some of you are like, i believe it when I see it. You're, you're from Missouri instead of Minnesota. Show me, right? The show me state. I pastored there, so I can take that. But I believe when we're done, when we get to the passage here, we're going to find out that there's not a whole lot we can do with what Jesus says. There's not a whole lot we can embellish. There's not spin. There's not either accept it or you're going to reject it. There's nothing I can add to it to make it go down better. And there's nothing I can do to expedite the process for you. You've got to digest it. You're going to have to take the message that God's going to give to you today, and you're going to have to say, is it worth it or not? Is it worth it? That's the cost. Is it worth doing what God asked me to do or is it not? Because this passage, these words that are spoken by Jesus are difficult, they're demanding, they're abrupt they're offensive and they run absolutely counterculture to the Christian church today. So this this is this is okay? We're going to we're going to drive an indie car across a speed bump. Right? Those of you ever ever seen what happens when okay? We're going to we're going to fly an indie car today. Because in our Christian subculture that we're living in today, sometimes we are not as biblical as we think we are. Sometimes we like to take what God says and water it down to something that's more palatable for us. But we forget that this was given by the one who enables us to do it. This is given, this command that we're going to read today is given by the one who enables us to live up to what he's asking for. So when we choose not to do it, we're actually working against the one we say we're following. You're like, all right, Pastor Joe, just get to it. Now you're dragging the sermon out. I was. Luke fourteen twenty-five. I can't make it too short. Then you'll expect it every week. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. It says this, Now the crowds, the great crowds accompanying him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, let me give you two observations quickly as we get into this passage. Number one, this is an urgent plea. This is an urgent evangelistic passage. Okay, Jesus is making a point on purpose. He's doing something that is so radical and so drastic and so countercultural to the Jews that it shocks them. This is one of those moments where you kind of rear back like, whoa. You ever done that in a conversation? Somebody goes ballistic and you're like, whoa, hey, easy now. Let's, let's de-escalate a little bit. All right. Jesus is coming aggressive here. He's coming hard. Now let's think about this. Family to the Jews, important or not important? Super important. Matter of fact, so important that when the first son would go and find his wife, he would come back and build his house where? on the existing house. They'd build another floor, they'd go up another floor, they'd do another wing, depending on what kind of land they had. And if you go to Jerusalem and look at pictures today, their buildings are built so they can go vertical or they can go horizontal. And because you could add more rooms onto your house, Jesus even kind of implies that when he talks about heaven, right? In my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for, where? In his father's house. So we see this illustration. Jesus understands this very well. And in context, Jesus had just finished telling a parable about the importance of inviting people to his banquet. So this passage is highly evangelistic. This passage is very uber, if you will, using a modern term, very uber, very important when it comes to understanding what Jesus' desire is. And in Luke chapter 14, look at verse 23. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be... Has Jesus' desire for that changed? Has his command for that softened? Has he changed his mind and said, well, it's okay not to bring him in. Let's all go out and and let's do it all out there. No. No. His desire is for people to do it in the house. Now, some of the work has to be done outside the house too, right? He sent his disciples out how? Two by two. So they went out and they came in. They did both. It wasn't one or the other. So a healthy church is going to be a church that has what? People that are both bringing people in and people that are going out. Now, before you say, well, I don't know if our church is healthy, let me remind you, the, the building's not the church. The building's where the church meets. It's where the church comes together to worship and to praise and to serve. So if you started thinking right away, well, Faith Baptist, are we doing both? of? The-? No, you missed it. Jesus is talking to you this morning. He's not talking to the corporate. He's talking to the person. He's talking to the individuals. And he says, who are you inviting to my banquet on a regular basis? Who are you compelling as you're going out in the highways and byways of life to bring them in that my house might be full? Number two observation is this. This is a highly demanding passage, all right? Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything here. Um, Mary Poppins wouldn't be accepted in Jesus' narrative here, right? Just a spoonful of sugar helps, right? There's no medicine here, or there's no sugar here. It's straight medicine, He's not playing. He's serious. And he's being very direct in this passage of Scripture. And I encourage you to go back after the service and reread John 14. Read the whole passage and come ripping down through the narrative and hit our text today and you're going to see how dramatic it really was. How shocking it really is of what Jesus Christ says right here in this passage. But this passage is not just shocking and it's not just urgent in its urgency for evangelism, but it's also demanding passage when it comes to discipleship. This is a demanding discipleship passage. Jesus also gives conditions to those who are considering following him. If you're here this morning and you're on the edge, whether or not you're going to sell to Jesus Christ, there's a message for you here today. If you're sitting here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ and you're not part of the family of God, and you've been on the edge and you've been playing in the suburbs of... of Religion and, and, and debating whether or not you really want to sell it for Christ, Jesus has a message for you this morning. And if you call yourself a disciple this morning, if you take the word that Jesus uses in this narrative, then measure your view of God's command versus what he actually says. We sung the song, He's a good, good father, right? Is He good enough to follow? Is He good enough to trust? Is he good enough to obey? That's the question for you this morning. So there's a message for everybody here in this simple little compact passage. So let's mine out the passage a little bit, shall we? The word disciple is found at the end of verse 26. It says, he cannot be my what? This is the word all of us know. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my... There's the word, right? Verse 27. At the end of it, what does it say again? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my... There it is again. If we were to keep reading, you'd also find the word disciple in verse 33. A third time in context. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my... Say it together. There it is again. If God says something once, it's kind of important, right? If He says something twice, we should take notice. Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot be a child of God, right? We hear verily, verily, truly, truly, and uh, we see repeated words for emphasis. What about when God says something three times? It becomes a suggestion. Right? We devalue that. It, it becomes a suggestion now. It's kind of like the stop signs with the white stripes around it. They're optional, right? The one that has the white border around the outside of the stop, that's an optional one. The ones that are red all the way to the edges mean actually... No. A stop sign means what? A disciple means what? Disciple. So God is defining... Jesus himself is defining what a disciple is and is not... So we can't play with the word we we can't we can't manipulate this this is him so a disciple is a learner or follower and was used the word was used to describe someone who was totally committed to the cause or a person so disciple is a learner or follower and is completely or totally committed to a cause or a person So if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are 100% dedicated to the cause and the person of who? Jesus Christ. That's what disciple means. It comes from another word, which means to learn by practice or to learn by experience. Much like an apprentice A disciple is one who emulates a teacher. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. He said this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who, when he is fully trained, he will be what? Like his teacher. So if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, how much like the teacher are you? How much are you emulating? How much are you similar to your teacher. That comes to this truth. Jesus is more interested in having committed followers than he is in, a, in drawing a crowd of fickle fans. Jesus is more interested in having committed followers than drawing a crowd of fickle fans. Have you ever noticed in Jesus' ministry that he was awesome at taking huge crowds and throwing them away? Feeding of the 5,000 plus children and women, right? So we could argue very easily 15,000 or more multiple children, multiple, no, I'm just kidding. No, multiple wives, men, women, and children, right? Three, three times five is okay. Simple math here. We can do this. It's Sunday morning, but we can still do it. 15,000 people he ministers to, and then he sends them all the way. Why? He knew why they were following. They were hungry for food. They wanted to see a magic show. They weren't interested in what he actually was talking about. So he sends them away. It's interesting today in church ministry and church mindedness, we want to get as bigger crowds as we can get. And Jesus was constantly trying to get rid of crowds. If you doubt my philosophy, go to Matthew chapter five, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with a great multitude along the Sea of Galilee. It's an amphitheater style setting. Jesus is standing at the bottom with the people to start and the people start amassing so great that he begins to climb the hill. And as he backs himself up the hill, speaking to the multitudes below, by the time he gets to the top of the hill, who's left? Just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 sometime. Think about how long it takes you to read it Understand Matthew took notes and he's not giving you the full sermon. But the Sermon on the Mount to read it takes a while, right? How long did it take for Jesus to give it? This was a long sermon. He would not be accepted in 97.3% of churches today. He would have blown his time limit. He preaches a long sermon and the only people that are left around him are his disciples. He took a massive crowd and whittled it down to 12. He takes massive groups of people and whittles it down to just a few. He would even take smaller groups and make them smaller, wouldn't he? Remember when he heals a man and he says, where are the others? Where are the others? So Jesus understands the philosophy that those that are following him are going to be far fewer than those who act like they do. He wants quality over quantity. Now, don't get me wrong. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should what? Come to repentance. He wants everybody to get saved, but what does he also know because he's omniscient? Man has a free will. And just because they have a free will doesn't mean he's going to make them follow him. And praise the Lord, we don't have a God that makes us do anything, amen? Amen. That's what allows us to express our love towards him. Otherwise, we'd be robots. We'd be stuck. The main point that Jesus is making here is this. While in the family, and while family is foundational to who we are and what we are, following Christ must come before family. Following Christ must come before family. Now, that's not popular to say in America today. That's not popular to say in churches today. Because if we got something family-oriented, we use that as an excuse why we can skip church. And we do. But does that fly with Jesus? Just because the pastor or somebody says, oh, well, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that. And then we feel justified or righteous, but is it really an excuse that we can use before God? And by the way, this ain't even the point of the message yet. These are just the observations we can take from the passage. Let's get into the four demands that Jesus actually calls for when it comes to discipleship now. Let's jump into it. Look at verse 25 with me. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, now observe a couple things. Jesus often drew crowds, as I mentioned before, but he was never interested in being popular. He, he never, the, the phrase you refers here to many multitudes or large throngs of people Look back at Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 with me quickly. Let's go back to Luke chapter 12. It says this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, and when they were trampling one another, doesn't that sound like a crowd? Okay, they're they're, they're out of control. They're trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus knew many in the crowd were following him for selfish or superficial reasons. Now, now Jesus would know that, right? And if that was true of Jesus' teaching, how much more true is it today in any group of people? If this is true of the master shepherd, the master teacher, how much more is it probably prevalent in the world and the churches that we live in today? So that leads me to a question. Are we following Jesus this morning for selfish, superficial reasons or that others may know who Jesus is? Are we following Jesus for superficial reasons and that I might get something, I might be blessed or something like that, or am I really following Jesus so that I can learn and show others how they can have eternal life? You see, the mission of a Christian is not simply to have fire insurance and live however we want, and we got this really cool thing called 1 John 1, 9, so we get out of jail free card, Right? So if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. Woohoo! And to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's great for me. Especially if I'm consuming, that's good for me. But if I'm serving the King of Kings, why do I want to sin? Why would I want to sin in the first place? Why would I want to violate the name of the Father who gave his Son for me? Why would I want to do that? And when I do fall short of the glory of God, guess what I have now? I have First 1 John 1, nine. I have the, I'm going to take a shower verse. Right? I'm going to take a shower and I'm going to confess my sin to Jesus Christ because, well, frankly, he already knows it. Right? He's omniscient. He already knows my sin. He already knows I fell short of the glory of God. He already knew that when I was still in the act of sinning, he died for me. So there's not anything I can do to impress him. He chose me, he drafted me, he recruited me before the foundation of the world. So I don't have that working for me. So first John one nine all of a sudden becomes a shower and bath verse for me. If I confess my sins to him, he will thoroughly scrub me from the inside out to be righteous before him, so I can do what? I can go to my father and say, Dad, I need help. That's first John one nine. It's not my woo, I can do whatever I want, clause. There's a high cost to discipleship that Jesus puts on it. In the midst of all the fanfare, Jesus turns to them who was actually following him in a very dramatic way, mind you, a dramatic act. The idea has this, that as Jesus is talking, he snaps, he twists his body and he looks over and this mindset draws his attention and he goes from the track that he's on and he snaps to these people and he replies the way that he does. Has the idea of twisting forcefully or with deliberate effort. Jesus then describes... By the way, this is the same word in the Greek used for when Jesus was going between Anna's house and Caiaphas' house. The night in which Judas betrayed him. And as he's walking from Anna's house to Caiaphas's house... He makes eye contact with Peter. And it says that Jesus made eye contact. Jesus saw Peter afar off. The word Jesus saw him means that Jesus snapped. He turned and intentionally looked at Peter. This is the same word. He turns and he snaps and he looks at the people. And he says, by the way, that's Luke 22:61. 61, if you want to look it up. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What did Jesus want to tell these people? For sure, he didn't give them positive means so that they would go home and be a better them. I can promise you that. When he snapped a turn, he wasn't encouraging them to be a better them. You know what he's saying? Are you my disciple or not? You know what he's asking each one of us today? Are you my disciple or not? Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in thy name? He says, What? Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I don't know who you are. You're an illegitimate child. By the way, we know that to be true because whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life? The ones that are part of the family. And the reason they open the Lamb's Book of Life and they look inside to see if the name's there is because if your name's there, you're a child of God. And if your name's not there, then you're not a child of God and you're an illegitimate child. And Jesus knows how to separate The one the the true ones from the false ones. Number two, we prioritize faith over family. How would you respond if Jesus spun around, he were standing in front of you or sitting in front of you? He spun around, he looked you in the eyes and says that if any man comes after me and does not hate his father, mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If Jesus was sitting in front of you today and he spun around and said that, how would you feel? How would you feel? Let me remind you, these words are Jesus himself and they're intended for each one of us. It's a heavy message. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. If anyone comes to me, this is not just a call of missionaries. This is not just a call of pastors. This is not just a call of the super spiritual. If anyone comes after me, the crowd wondered what they thought Jesus would give them, not knowing that Jesus Christ's in return, would ask for everything. Let's allow the demands of discipleship in the passage to shock us and kind of rock us back on our feet a little bit, can we? Imagine how offensive the statement would have been to those in a culture where honoring parents was the highest obligation and family was one of the greatest sources of joy. Imagine, by the way, by the way, you can't, You can't say that you have discipleship down just because you hate your brother or sisters either, okay? That's not what the passage teaches. You're like, man, I'm already hit. I already hate my mom and dad, so I'm halfway home, right? Okay, that's not what the passage teaches. That's not it either. So before you get too comfortable and you're like, hey, let me give you what the word hate means, okay? The word hate means to detest or to abhor Jesus is saying we are not to act in a hateful way towards our families, but the Bible is clear that we are to honor our parents, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, right? So obviously, hate, detest, abhor, that's, that's not the whole inference here. There, there's got to be something bigger Jesus is saying, right? He doesn't want us to go around hating. By the way, we're called to love our husbands. We're called to love our wives. So, you know, we can't negate scripture and and use eisegesis here and say, well, it says it here, bless God, I'm going to do it. And negate all other scripture. We have to be consistent. So obviously there's something bigger. There's something more grand. There's something in a scope that's larger than what's going on here because Ephesians 5.33 is still in the Bible that wives are to respect their husbands and husbands are to love their wives and dads aren't to provoke their kids to wrath, Ephesians 6, 4. Uh, Children are to love, or wives are to love, mothers are to love their husbands and their children, Titus 2, 4. You know, grown children are to care for their parents when they're no longer able to do so, 1 Timothy 5, 8. So, I mean, we have passages of Scripture that work contrary to this if we try to interpret it in a way that we want it to. But if we put it in the context in which Jesus is doing it, it becomes something very powerful. So our challenge is to understand this cultural expression without diluting the demand of discipleship at the same time. So how do we do that? Well, the bottom line is this. Since since there will inevitably be conflict between following Christ and family ties, we must prioritize our faith over family. Talk to Muslims who have converted to Christianity. What happens? Their family hates them. Their family abhors them. Their family detests them. Right? This happens even in some Catholic families when somebody converts, right? Their family hates them. They disassociate with them when they convert to Christianity. The word hate in the English language means to abhor, to to shun, to hate, to detest. But the word hate here in the Bible often expresses priority, okay? And when we understand that the word hate means to prioritize something and preference something over something else, it's not emotional driven, it's objectively driven, then all of a sudden this passage makes a lot more sense. This passage actually agrees with the rest of scripture and the passage all of a sudden becomes very livable. So what is Jesus asking his disciples to do? He's asking us to Prioritize him before everybody else. Is Jesus more important than your father? Is Jesus more important than your sister, your brother, your cousin, your nephew, your grandkids? Is Jesus more important than your wife or your husband? Now, all of a sudden, we've got something that makes sense in Scripture. We've got something that we can teach and we can preach and we can prosper under because now we understand that hatred isn't something that we are to detest, abhor, or hate, but it's something that we are to prioritize. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, Our love for Christ must be so strong that all other love is like hatred in comparison. The stress is on the priority of love. That's what Jesus explains in Matthew 10 and verse 37. Check this out. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not what? Worthy of me. Who loves more than. Why is it more than? Because it's priority. It's not emotionalism. By the way, so much of the Bible is not emotionalism. It's objective truth. Now let me ask you a question. When is there a time period in which prioritizing your family over God should be more important? (laughs) There isn't one, right? What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other... There it is. Clear as day for us. He gave it to us a long time ago and we just don't get it sometimes. By the way, Jesus also is not minimizing relationships here. He's not saying minimize your children, minimize your wife, minimize. He's not talking about that either. He's talking about in the priority of things that must happen, that God is a God of order. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one that has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time houses brothers sisters mothers children lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life we've been called to love and to live for Jesus Christ first and foremost number 3 love the lord more than your life love the lord more than your life Jesus hits at the very heart of human relationships to make sure following him is first He then brings it closer to home by challenging us to lay aside our personal ambitions, our personal goals, and our very own lives ourselves. If anyone comes after me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you put your preference and your way and your vacation and your time and your kids and your family before God and expect God to bless you, you're fooling one person, yourself. How many times do we blame God, though, when our family falls apart? God, I don't know why you're allowing this to happen to my family. We've been in church all these. God's not interested in you going to church. He's interested in being number one. If he's number one, guess what a byproduct of that's going to be? You're going to go to church. You're going to want to be around his people. You're going to want to be around his business. You're going to be doing the things that are important to him. Listen to Luke 5, 28. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Leaving what? Everything. The commitment to Christ is costly. Number four, a fully surrendered, fully surrendered to his supremacy as well. We have to be fully surrendered to his supremacy. Who is the chief creator of all things? Jesus Christ, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was God, or in, in, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How about this? Okay, is that better? All right. I was trying to translate in my head, and it didn't come out right. In the beginning, the Word and God are equal to each other, and God and the Word are equal to each other. You can flip them. Jesus is God, and the Word is God. And if Jesus is the Word, and the Word is Jesus and God is the Word, and Jesus is the Word, then God and Jesus are who? The Word. They're the same person. John 1.1 1, 1 teaches us that God and Jesus are the same. And if you've got the Word of God, then guess what else you got? You got His Son. And if you got His Son, guess who else you get? The Holy Spirit of God. And when you have the Trinity working for you, who's going to stand against you? Nobody. Nobody. And God wants to be first in your life because if you've got him first, then all these things shall be added to who? Unto you. Problem is he's got to be first. He's got to be first. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The word to bear here literally means to take or to rise up. Unfortunately, we have romanticized crosses today, haven't we? We wear them as necklaces, We don't view them as instruments of torture. We don't, we don't wear them as instruments of death. Imagine walking around today with the electric chair hanging on your neck. Imagine walking around with a noose hanging from your neck and adorning that and saying, isn't this so pretty? The picture of the cross was absolute torture and death to every criminal. You didn't survive the cross. Nobody survived the cross. It was absolute certain death. And as we have romanticized the cross around our necks and walls, and and that's fine, we've kind of lost what the cross meant when the Jews saw it. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was a form of torture. It was a reminder that they were under the rule of another. And when a person was going to be humiliated through execution and excruciating pain on the cross, everyone knew the person was saying goodbye and that everything they owned and everything that they had meant nothing to them because they weren't coming back. That's what Jesus is saying. Unless you deny yourself, you deny everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you die to yourself, you cannot be my disciple. You're not coming back. If you commit to Christ, there's no going back. You're going forward. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 says? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was, what? Set before him. Endured the cross, despised the shame, and today is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Matter of fact, the whole theme of Hebrews, isn't it? Don't go back. The sacrifice, the temple, the priest, they're all still working. They're all still there, but Jesus died on the cross. So follow Jesus. The temptation to go back is going to be there. The persecutions going to want you to go back to the old way of doing things. But keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking at the author and finish with our faith. Keep going this way. Don't go that way. Be thoroughly convinced that Jesus is all supreme in your life. Salvation is both absolutely free and yet it costs you your very life. The irony of salvation. It's a free gift that costs you everything. You didn't do anything to get it, but once you get it, everything you have is worthless. Because you go from thinking temporally to eternally. What are you going to take with you in your hearst? What kind of U-Haul are you going to pull behind your hearst? You brought nothing into this world and surely you will take nothing out. Think about that. The high cost of discipleship. The best gift that you can give your family is to make your faith real. The greatest thing you can do for your children, your parents, your cousins, your aunts, your brothers, your sisters, is to live a real life for Jesus Christ. Because when they see your good works, they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. So let your light so shine before men. Let it shine. Live for Jesus Christ. Be a mouthpiece for him. Let me give you just a couple closing thoughts. The family is foundational, but following Christ must come first. We need to move from the crowd to the committed core. Who are the real followers of Jesus Christ? Who are the real disciples of Jesus Christ? You need to move from being part of the crowd to one of the committed core. Number two, prioritize your faith over family. What comes first? Well, you know what? I'm going to take the time off from Jesus. Well, let me know how that works out for your kids. Let me know how that works out for your grandkids. Because how many times have I had people in my office, I just don't understand how we got here. Well, let's take a journey back in time. Let's walk back. Let's see where the path diverged from what God's plan was. You know what? So much of counseling is that, isn't it? Going back and we find out that the conscious decision was made somewhere to walk away from God. It was a conscious decision. It might have been gradual, but they they still made it. Number three, love the Lord more than your own life. If you lay down your life, Jesus says he can take it up again. You realize that? He says, you lay down your life, I'll take it up again. I can can do that. Aren't you glad he rose from the dead? Because what did he prove? He can do it, right? He's not asking you to do something that's unproven. He's, he's asking you to, do, to believe in something he's already done. And then number four, fully surrender to his supremacy. Are you willing to say, Lord, not my will, but your will? Not my way, but your way. Because he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. You can't come to the Lord, but through him. By the way, I want to leave you with one passage of scripture. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? The children of God. He goes on to say, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? So if God really is a good, good father, is he going to do any less than your earthly father would do for you? Would he do anything less than what an earthly father would do? So you say, well, I'm going to honor my father by doing this one thing. And God's going to understand. How about you do the one thing for God the Father in heaven? And he'll make your earthly father understand. Sometimes we get it backwards in discipleship. Well, if I do this, then I'll be able to reach my relatives. I guarantee you, you live for Jesus first, your relatives are going to take notice. I'm telling you, it's not my words, it's his word. It's not my thoughts, it's his thoughts. So, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the high cost of discipleship? The choice is yours. In just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. And uh, we're going to hand out both the elements at the same time. And I'm going to ask you to hang on to the elements. And if you want to know, well, do I partake or not partake? I'm not a church member, but I'm saved. You know what? Here, here's the guidelines to communion in our, our ministry. If you're here today and you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ... That is this. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you have been walking with the Lord and you've evaluated your life and you've searched your own heart. Then we're going to invite you to eat with us. Okay? It's something for believers. It was instituted by Jesus himself for believers. By the way, it's interesting. Study why Judas didn't get to partake that night. Right? His his got stuck in the drink. He didn't take it. But if you're here the, this morning and, and that is you, you're part of the family of God, we encourage you to partake with us. If you're here this morning and you're part of the family of God and you've got sin harbored in your life and there's something you won't let go and won't let the master have, take the time while the elements are being handed out and get right with the Lord. First John 1, 9. He wants to scrub you thoroughly and cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Give it to God. Surrender. Say, Lord, not my will, your will be done. Right? Just like the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in what? Is God's will accomplished in heaven? And if you allow God to accomplish His will through you, will He do it? Absolutely. So if you're here, the only ones that shouldn't partake this morning are ones that are in one of two conditions. Number one, you're not part of the family of God. Or number two, you're so set in your sinful ways that you don't want to confess. Those are the two that shouldn't partake today. But anybody else, you're welcome to partake with us as we hand out the elements in just a moment, I'm going to have our ushers come and we are going to hand out the bread and the cup together. And then I'm going to read the uh, scripture at, uh, for both of those. And we'll partake of the Lord's table together. If you want to follow along, it's found in first Corinthians, first uh, Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, as we partake of the elements, if you want to follow along as we do the narrative, you're more than free to follow along with us. Um, but, we want to do this as a time that is set aside to bring God glory and to honor him and to remember the Lord until he does come. This is one of the sign proofs that he hasn't returned yet, that we continue to do this till the Lord comes. So let's pray together, and as I pray, our ushers will come, and then we'll hand out the elements together. Father, thank you again for your word. I thank you that it is quick and powerful and as sharp as a two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that as we enter into this time of commemorating what you've done for us by breaking your body on the cross for us, by, by the, the bones coming out of joint, just as Psalm said would happen. And Father, as you were high and lifted up and gave your life as a ransom for many, and the blood that was shed on the cross was shed for the remission of sin. And as you hung there on the cross and you said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you said, it is finished. That redemption was done. The Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world was being crucified on that cross for me and for us and for you. And Father, as we partake of these two elements that picture the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, we do this until you come again. And Father, we already read the verses or or quoted the verses that said you are coming again, that you went and prepared a place for us and you will come again and receive us unto yourself that where you are, we may be also. And Father, we look forward to that day, but before then, we have a mission. We have a commission that you have given to us to go into the world and proclaim, herald the gospel to everybody. And Father, even though there's a high call to discipleship, the best news is you've equipped us to do it. You've given us your word. You've given us the church to educate and disciple. You've given us other believers. You've given us prayer. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word, and you've given us the time and ability to do it. So Father, help us to be obedient children and to go out and invite people into dying and see how good our Father is. Lord, may this time of commemoration be one where we celebrate the great things you have done for us. So now we can go and do great things in your name for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.